I'm so glad to see you all here. Welcome. Um, if I don't know you, my name is Kathy Gurley, and I hope I will get to meet each one of you. In the center of your tables are some handout notes that will follow along as I'm talking. So a lot of times it's just easier for me to say First Chronicles and not have to list the whole verse and things like that. So you have all the references there if you want to look them up later. So this cross here um, belongs to my friend Bev Watson, who's not here. But um, another friend, my friend Lori, when she had to give a talk and some really difficult things from her life and she was in the sanctuary and she looked up and she said, I just wanted to stand behind the cross. And so when we get to the end of our talk, I want to stand behind the cross at the very last part and that's why. So um, our study is titled God, Our True King. As we study 1 Samuel, we'll see that the people of Israel wanted a king like all the other nations. They rejected God, who had been their king all along. So our study will start with the prophet Samuel, then introduce us to the reign of the first king of Israel, King Saul, and then overlay his kingship with partial narrative about King David. And then second semester, we'll get into more of King David. So these scrolls were originally part of one big long text. Actually, it was First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings were all together, and they were called the books of the kingdoms. The first one kingdoms, two kingdoms, and so on. Um, so today we want to see the context of Samuel in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, look at a few maps, see the storyline of the book, find out things about it, like. When was it written? Who wrote it? Things like that. And then most importantly, we want to find out about the God who has spoken through this book. So would you pray with me before we begin? Our Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. We look to you as our great God, our true King. And we pray for your Holy Spirit to go before us now that you may Speak through my words, and that you may touch all of our hearts, that we each might go away from here changed because of your spirit speaking to us through your word. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the Hebrew Bible, the book of 1 Samuel followed immediately after the book of Judges. So there's a phrase that's repeated several times in the book of Judges, and it said, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so in an oral culture where communication was often, you know, memorized and, or sung or things like that and not necessarily written, these two sentences would have been the last things that people would have heard right before the beginning lines of the narrative of Samuel. So we're going to start with a timeline to see where we are in history. So here's my little timeline. Um, so, and then you've got these verses on your pages. So at creation, God declared that everything was very good. Adam and Eve enjoyed a daily relationship with God in perfect harmony, their rightful king, until they decided to do what was right in their own eyes and disobey God. 
We call this event the fall. That's in Genesis 3. As time went on, the... Oh, I need to look here. Let me get my Genesis ones. As time went on, things actually got worse. This is in Genesis 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we could paraphrase this and say that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But, but God, there's always a but God, but in God's eyes, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So he and his family are kept through the flood, but the Israelites flaunt God's command to fill the earth, and instead they do what was right in their own eyes by building a big tower at Babel to reach the heavens. God has to scatter the people by confusing their languages, and ultimately he calls a man named Abraham to be the leader of his people. When there is no heir, son, born, after God's promise to Abraham to, that he would have descendants as many as the dust of the earth, then he and Sarah do what seems right in their own eyes, and they make a scheme to get a son through her maid. Not so good. Eventually, the promised son Isaac is born, but he and his wife each show favoritism to a different one of their sons. Jacob's sons scheme to get rid of their actually rather bratty brother at that time, Joseph, and the entire family winds up enslaved in Egypt. God calls Moses to lead the people of Israel out of their bondage to slavery, but Moses takes matters into his own hands, doing what he thought was right in his own eyes, kills an Egyptian, and he has to flee. He eventually does do lead God's people out of Egypt, but their disobedience and not trusting God turns an 11-day trip into a 40-year trip because they continually obey, refuse to trust God, and instead do what seems right in their own eyes. Joshua eventually leads them into the land that God promised, but they don't obey all of his instructions to drive out every enemy from that land and not to take wives and for their um, sons from the people, the Canaanites. So Israel is now in their promised land. They're kind of like a loose affiliation of tribes um, overseen by uh, some judges that God raises up at certain times. But the repeated scenario is this. They turn to idols, doing what's right in their own eyes. Then they are besieged by enemies. They plead with God for his help. He raises up a judge who rescues them, goes before them, leads them. Then they praise God, and they're so thankful. But then the, that turns to complacency, and then the cycle repeats. And it repeats, and there's another judge, and it repeats again, and many, many judges. It's kind of a sad book. Um, so, this is the situation when the book of 1 Samuel opens up. So, let's look at some maps to get um, oriented. So, I want to first show you a map of current day Near East. So, you can see Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Syria, Turkey, Iran, Iraq. If you're thinking of Afghanistan, I had to, I had to go and refresh my memory, too. It's way off to the east, past Iran, above there's India and Nepal and Pakistan, and then there's Afghanistan. So just because since that's in the news right now. So this little strip of Israel, it's light gray next to Jordan, and that 
that little strip has been contested for centuries, thousands of years, because it's such a strategic place. The, um, so Israel is in that area right now, but there's some green parts that are Palestinian-occupied too. So that's, I wanted you to see today, so now we can go and look at the ancient Near East. It's actually the same area. Okay, so this is the very same area. And interestingly enough, at the time of, of Samuel, Egypt, and you see over to the right, Assyria and Babylonia, they, they later become very powerful enemies of Israel, but at this particular time, they really aren't, which is surprising to me. But we need to look at this Israel area in greater detail, so we're going to put a map up here that's the same map that's in your book. So you want to turn your, to the page 167, Appendix A, in the very back of your book. And you need a pencil or a pen. So the main enemy of the Israelites at this time was the Philistines. The Philistines have five cities that were a big deal. Okay, I'm glad you have it in front of you because it doesn't really seem to show very well there. Okay, if you can look over by the Mediterranean Sea, well, it's called the Great Sea here, and find Ashdod, A-S-H-D-O-D, put a line under that. That's one of the five cities from the Philistines. Then there's another A word called Ashkelon that is not on this map. So if you go down about halfway between Ashdod and where you see Gaza, put a dot for Ashkelon, A-S-H-K-E-L-O-N, and put it right by the seacoast. It was a port city. That's the second. That's the second one. Then we have, back up under Ashdod, Ekron. So underline that one. That's three. And the last two to underline are Gath and Gaza. So that makes up the five Philistine cities that will keep coming into our readings in our, as we study. Now, when you... Um, When we talk about our country, lots of times we might say, well, from the East Coast to the West Coast, or from New York to LA, or something like that. And we're talking, we're trying to illustrate that we're talking about the entire nation or country. So th this was the same for the Israelites. They would often refer to Dan to Beersheba, from Dan to Beersheba, and they, went, they were encompassing their land. If you look way in the north, you will see Dan. And then do you see the little light dotted blue lines that go down. If you follow those all the way down to where it says Philistines, then you'll see Beersheba. So that's just showing you Dan to Beersheba. When you run into that in your, in your Bible, when you read that, you know this is the whole area that they're just talking about. So the River Jordan runs from north to south through the Sea of Galilee and through the large blue lake, which is um, the Dead Sea. If you go up from the Dead Sea, up the Jordan River to where it forks, look over to the left, just under Ephraim. Ephraim is that area. That was a tribe, so that's a tribal area. But right under that is Shiloh. Shiloh is the place where God had his tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant there, and that's the setting for 1 Samuel 
Eli was the high priest, and he had two sons who we will find out were worthless. If you go down a little bit, you will see Mizpah. It really should be P-A-H, but that city is where we will see later. Samuel calls all the people together to um, unify them under one king, and actually, God does an amazing thing with thunder to rout the Philistines. It's a pretty cool story. So we'll read that. So that's Mizpah. Then underneath that is Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown. And just to the northeast of that is Ramah. And that is where Samuel was born and his family is from that area. So just a little bit of, um, just to get you acclimated to the map. Let's see here. Okay, now let's go back in your books to page 11. So we're going to do this first lesson together. So you, didn't, you weren't able to come with a lesson already done, so we'll just do it all together here. And then you'll be doing lesson two for yourself for the week after our fellowships. So first, the author. The human author is unknown. But for sure, we know that the unseen author is the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter 1.21, the word of God says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men, of God's, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is really the one who writes the whole Bible. Um, so, the, so the book of 1 Samuel, it has his name. In fact, the book of the Second Samuel has his name too. But let me tell you, in 1 Samuel... By chapter 8, Samuel is old. By chapter 12, he's giving a farewell address. By chapter 21, he dies, and there are still 10 more chapters to go. So obviously, he could not have written the entirety of First and Second Samuel. So in, let's see. Okay, First Samuel 10, in First Samuel 10, it's, it says, that, so this is Samuel talking to all the people of Israel. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. So this is when they're inaugurating the very first king, Saul. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. So that may have been part of the chronicles that were later used when someone compiled all these books. We also learn, if we go to Second Chronicles, uh, First Chronicles 29... Now, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer. Now, Nathan and Gad lived later during King David's time. They weren't even alive during Samuel's time. But So somewhere there are like state official documents, maybe history, that someone used to compile and put all this together for the book of the books of First and Second Samuel. Um, oh, and there's one more in Second Samuel. In Second Samuel, in the very first chapter, after King Saul and his son Jonathan have died, David memorializes um, Saul and Jonathan with a song that he calls the Song of the Bow. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, 
it is written in the book of Jashar. Now, I don't know anything about Jashar. In fact, I suspect if I, if I looked it up, it, that's probably the only time in the scriptures it's even mentioned. But whoever Jashar was, he must have compiled some history also. So John MacArthur tells us that the unknown human author speaks for the Lord and gives the divine interpretation of the events that are narrated. So we know from King David, we know how long he reigned in Hebron and how long he reigned in Jerusalem. We don't really know that for Samuel. We don't have as good of data about that. Most sources have Saul, his reign ending about 1010 BC. So then David would pick up from there 1010 BC to 971 BC. And those are pretty um, sure dates. Remember, BC, so the numbers are going backwards. <laughs> Samuel would have lived approximately 1105, so he's earlier, 1105 to 1030 BC. And it's plausible that because the compilation of the scrolls was finished somewhat after David's reign, the kingdoms were divided after David's son Solomon, and they had the north and south, so they had, they called the northern one Israel, the southern one Judah, and it, when we're reading in our studies, we will often see Israel and Judah, Israel and Judah, so they're thinking that these books were compiled after the split of the two kingdoms. The style, it's a historical narrative. Um, it has a few songs. It's got multiple plot arcs, commentary by the author as to what God's doing behind the scenes, and a few speeches and prayers, but mainly it's a historical narrative. The author's aim is to show how Israel moved from a loose monarch, loose affiliation of tribes with an occasional judge as their leader to a unified monarchy. So when we get to King David, like how did they go from that, from where they were just kind of not having good direction and every once in a while having a judge, and all of a sudden now we've got King David, we've got a temple, we've got, uh, well, we're getting a temple, and we've got, he's got a palace for sure. So Samuel is the link here between the judges and the kings. The author makes it clear that any king of Israel must be subject to God's word. They need to be obedient and listen to the prophets. And that was what the prophets did at that time. They spoke the word of God to the kings. And the kings were expected to believe that was really from God and to obey it. So Samuel's the last judge. He's also from the tribe of Levi. But he functions as a priest, even though he's not from the line of Aaron. And then we also call him a kingmaker because he anoints Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel. In 2 Samuel, God promises David an eternal house or dynasty through his family line. And ultimately, this promised king will be an eternal king, a son of David, meaning he's from David's line, who will be perfect, righteous, and holy. So... Ultimately, all of us are the recipients of this. Of course, at that time, it was their nation's history, but we all are able to read this now and take to heart the lessons that God has for each one of us to learn. So let's look at the story of Samuel. Let's see. It opens with a genealogy of Elkanah, a man from the tribe of Levi, who was not a priest. 
He had a wife, Hannah, who was much loved, but barren. She's bullied by a second wife, Peninnah, who has many children. Hannah's prayer for a son results in the birth of Samuel, a faithful servant and prophet of God and the very last judge. Hannah vows to return her son back to the Lord to serve him and prays a song-like kind of a prayer. And I was going to read it out of my Bible, but then I realized, oh, I forgot we have our memory verses. It's on, um, this is just the first part of it, from 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And so that was part of Hannah's prayer. Her words display in her whole song many facets of God's character and vividly portrayed the upside-down ways of God, which you'll learn about in Lesson 2. It introduced many of the themes from First and Second Samuel. If you are familiar with Jesus' mother Mary's song from Luke, you will hear many echoes from Hannah's song probably because Mary had that memorized. Young Samuel is brought to the priest Eli at God's dwelling place, the tabernacle in Shiloh, to minister to the Lord. In one of many reversals and contrasts in the book, we see Samuel, who is from the tribe of Levi but not a priest, functioning as God's priest, and conversely, Eli, the high priest, and his sons, who are in the priestly line of Aaron, but they're actually doing evil, and Eli's rebuke of them is just totally spineless, and all three of them die on the same day. So it's kind of a reversal. So we see the house of Eli, priests, on a downward slope. So the purple line, the Eli, or I guess, I don't know what color it is, it's going down, and the arrow's pointing down, and then Samuel is going up. And this happens quite often in the characters in these books, where one is rising as another one is falling. Um, the Ark of the Covenant. We do not know what it really looked like, but we do know several things about it. It was overlaid with gold everywhere. The carrying poles were also overlaid with gold, and the Wings of the angels touched each other. So there are all kinds of pictures, but I picked one that at least fulfilled the biblical characteristics, but it may have looked much different from that. Um, but it was the meeting place for God and man in God's tabernacle at Shiloh. We'll hear more about this ark and the way that the Israelites misuse it in chapters 4 through 6. So there's a major shift in Israel's history now as the people demand a king. God had been their king, but the people want to minimize him and limit his control of them and just kind of put him in a box. So Moses actually had given directions in Deuteronomy for a king, but their motive here is very misplaced because they just want a king like all the other nations. And really, that's a rejection of Yahweh, their God. Now, tall, Saul comes along, and he's tall. He's impressive and striking. And the people, they, they're very excited to have this guy as a king. But Samuel is pretty angry because he knows that this means that the people are rejecting God as their king. But he obeys God, anoints Saul with oil as Israel's first king. 
He counsels the people that both they and their king must obey and follow after God. Now Saul began well, but he didn't always obey God or have a heart for him, and God ultimately rejects Saul as king. And and he has Samuel privately go and anoint a young shepherd boy named David. Now David is a young man of godly character, and we can see this as he confronts the Philistine giant Goliath. So I I kind of edited this and shortened it a little bit, but this is from 1 Samuel 17. You come to me with a sword and a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that the Lord saves not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's. David becomes fast friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and of course that creates jealousy in Saul, and he actually tries to kill each of these young men multiple times. But Jonathan fights courageously, displays wisdom and trust in God. David must continually flee and hide from the unbalanced and volatile Saul, but he repeatedly honors God. God uses this time in David life to grow him up through all this adversity as he's just fleeing and hiding. He fights courageously. He instills loyalty in his men. The book ends with the death of Saul, but we have the promise of the kingship of David to anticipate. So now we'll look at some themes and some things about God's character. First of all, we have contrasts. There are lots of contrasts. I'll just tell you a few. The proud versus the humble. Peninnah versus Hannah. Saul versus Jonathan and David. Godly versus evil. Samuel versus Eli and his sons. Saul repeatedly tries to kill David. David has multiple opportunities to kill Saul, but he refuses to touch God's anointed king. Samuel is not a priest, but he faithfully functions as one. Eli's sons are priests, but they're not following God at all. So it's the rise of one person. So you can see Saul's going down, David's going up. And actually, we could even say that about Jonathan also. God's grace, one of my favorite topics. One of the things that shows us God's grace is how God gave David a faithful friend in Jonathan during all this adversity. He gave Hannah five other children after she returns Samuel to the Lord. One of the best things is the fact that David just pours out his heart in the Psalms. Um, And these bless people not only then, but we're still reading them and being blessed by them for generations. So let me read. This one is from Psalm 59. Oh, and actually I think Oh, this is also on one of your verse cards. I'll read it from here. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. That's from Psalm 59. So there are many of the Psalms that David wrote during this whole time of him fleeing from Saul, and they can be very much encouraging to each one of us, too. So they bring a sort of a savior in David who is patient and does honor God. 
Even though God had a perfect track record of being a benevolent king for Israel, he graciously bows aside to allow his people to have a king their way. But we also get hints of a future eternal king who will rule his people perfectly forever. We see God's sovereignty and his providential guidance, and those are probably some of the major themes that run through these books. God is at work even in events that we would say were evil. Week by week, we will see how God powerfully reveals himself in the characters and events in our study. He protects David over and over and over again for years. And so that's part of God's grace as he is pursued unjustly by King Saul. He blesses the obedient and allows consequences for the disobedient. He orchestrates events so that the proud are raised, the proud are debased and the humble are lifted up. Um, so I've mentioned this, but Samuel, a Levite but not a priest, takes on the priesthood from Eli's worthless son, showing that God may allow a priest not of the line of Aaron. This prepares us for Jesus' priesthood, which also was not of the line of Aaron, but rather from the line of a special priest called Melchizedek. So that was kind of a new thought for me. Ultimately, the human priesthood in the Old Testament is abolished by Jesus, as now all of us who belong to him are priests. So, let's see. This is a verse from 1 Samuel. Um, this is just showing how God is so different in his character than we are often. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. This is when Samuel's trying to figure out who he's going to anoint as the next king. And God says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And finally, God will powerfully exalt his name for his name's sake. In, in, first, in Samuel's farewell speech to Israel, he says... He says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. So, now we're going to look at another timeline. This one centered on our true king, the one who has rescued us from our bondage to sin and sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding, interceding for us. This timeline, you can see, starts with Judges and Samuel, which is where we left off on our first timeline. So I'm going to get behind here. So we can see where history is headed. Jesus is the center point. After Jesus, oh, well, first of all, we can skip over a lot of the history and it says, much history and many prophets <laughs> to get, to get from, from Samuel all the way to Jesus. Um, 
but of course, that's not the focus of our study this year. After Jesus, the remainder of the New Testament, the Gospels and the histories and the letters and things, relate the story of God's work through Jesus when he was on the earth. Then we move to the place where we are today. So more than 2,000 years later. And then you notice that it says return of Jesus. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we know it hasn't happened yet, but we are promised that he will return. So what exactly are we supposed to do with this Jesus? In 1 Samuel 6, after some of the Israelites who should have known better disobediently looked inside of the ark, they were struck dead, and the others say, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? This illustrates a key issue in Samuel. How can a human king coexist with an eternal holy God king without compromising God's kingship? We hear from God himself in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. If we think about David, he seems to sense that there's more than just him being a king. There's a bigger picture, almost like as if he remembers Abraham's words when God calls Abraham and says, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And I think David kind of has a sense of that. On my computer screen at home, I have a sticky note that says, there is only one way to stand unafraid before God, and that is clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. We all sin in so many ways, but God in his mercy forgives over and over, and for me, over and over and over and over and over again. But because Jesus lived the perfect life that we never could, took all the punishment that we deserved, gives us his perfect right standing before God. Yesterday, there was a funeral for a dear, precious saint from our church body who also was part of Habits for years. She's now with Jesus in heaven. But a friend showed me a short video of her shortly before she died, and she was saying these words, For he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what we call the great exchange. All of, Jesus takes all of our sin and guilt and shame and everything, all the punishment that we deserve, he takes that all on himself and in exchange. He gives us his perfect righteousness that he earned by living the life, the perfect life that we never could. So... In that same letter to the Second Corinthians, the verse that um, our friend said, Paul says this two sentences later. I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. If you have never surrendered yourself and trusted Jesus to be your Savior for all time, maybe today, now, is the day of salvation for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all those who have gone before us. And thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Father, we thank you that we never, ever could have come into your presence except by the 
through the blood of Jesus, who has rescued us from our bondage to sin, just as you rescued the Israelites from Egypt and did a mighty work. Father, it's a mighty work that you do in us when you change our hearts. Change our hearts today. Father, show us what you want to teach each and every one of us today. I pray for the women as they go to their groups that you will fill their leaders with your spirit, that you will speak through them and through the other ladies in their group. May you bless each and every one. We thank you for this time that we have together. May you be the one to receive all honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.